Okay, Hebrews 9, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And look with me at verse number 12. And we'll read down uh, through verse number 22. And finish up the Bible study we began two weeks ago. The Bible says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he, Jesus, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Look at verse 16. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For, of, for a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the blood and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkleth with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry." Look at verse 22. Let's read verse 22 together if we could. Ready? And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. And the title of the Bible study is the perfect work of a perfect blood. The perfect work of a perfect blood. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand the Bible study this evening. Lord, if all we get out of coming to church tonight is that we have a deeper understanding of truth, we're better for it. Uh, But Lord, applications will be made and uh, things will be pulled out that will uh, most likely be applicable to our lives. And so, Holy Spirit of God, work in each person's life differently according to what they need. And Lord, work in my heart and point things out in my life that where I fall short or could be better. Somebody here tonight needs encouraging. And so my prayer is the Bible study would encourage them. Others need their toes stepped on. Uh, They need to be rebuked. And so, Lord, Holy Spirit, you do the rebuking, Uh, not me. You do that. And uh, we pray tonight that all that's said and done would bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, two weeks ago, we began the Bible study talking about uh, blood and how that blood is not something that we like to look at. It's something that makes many people squeamish and nauseous. How many of you here do not like the sight of excessive blood? Okay, my hand's up. I don't enjoy it. I'm not going to pass out at it, but I'm not ready to just see blood just flow like a river. Okay, other people don't mind it. People that go hunting and whatnot, they have to gut an animal and they watch the blood flow. Whatever, it's all good. But uh, blood is not everybody's favorite thing to stare at. Uh, But blood is a very important part of who we are. In fact, you can't lose a whole lot of blood and stay alive. Remember we talked about this. And blood is not just liquid. There's more to it than blood. 
In fact, in Scripture, blood, the Bible says that blood has a voice. You may remember when Abel was murdered, God confronted Cain and said, The blood of your brother crieth to me from the ground. And uh, Abel's blood called for the vindication of the crime committed against him. Jesus' blood also had a voice, and it cried out to the Father that he would forgive humanity. It was the answer to Abel's blood. Abel's blood cried for vindication. Jesus' blood cried for victory. And we have victory through the blood of Jesus Christ. So you have, uh, the, uh, you have blood, and blood brings life. In fact, every 120 days, your blood is creating new cells, and old cells are dying off. And so you constantly have new and old cells in your bloodstream, and the new cells are replacing the blood cells on a cycle. And not only, uh, and, and by the way, yeah, someone who has studied at it, Miss Maggie uh, Ferreira does this for a living and went to school for it, but Miss Maggie he looks under a microscope at people's blood all the time and looks at the cellular level to determine either to forecast diseases or to diagnose diseases. And there's a lot of information in the blood. Not only is there the health of a person signified within the blood, there's also the genetic code, DNA, that's found within blood. Now, Adam and Eve's blood was perfect. It was flawless prior to sin. Once Adam and Eve chose to sin against God, their blood became, became contaminated, their blood became flawed, and had they not sinned, their blood would have remained perfect and they would have lived on forever in the Garden of Eden. Once they sinned, that blood became contaminated, and it was just a matter of time before the blood inside their veins would fail them and they would die. That's why we die. Lust, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth sin, and sins in result, James tells us, is what? It's death. And so all of us one day are going to lay in a casket or be cremated, and we're going to die. And the reason why we're going to die directly is because we are sinners, and we have contaminated blood that leans toward sin. By the way, when Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't just their blood that was contaminated. Animal blood was also contaminated as God put a sin curse on all of planet earth. And so animals would have lived on forever prior to the sin curse. And animals will not be under that sin curse once the millennial reign of Christ comes. That will be restored. So here you have human uh, hu- humanity has blood running in their veins, but that blood is tainted by sin. It is not just tainted on a medical level, it's tainted on a moral level. Not only does our contaminated blood cause our bodies to fail medically, it also, uh, it also affects us morally. We are sinners because our blood is contaminated by a fallen sin nature. Now, you insert Jesus into the picture, and Jesus had a mother, but he did not have a father. In fact, he was put in Mary's womb, who was a virgin, by who? Holy Spirit. And Jesus was born having a perfect blood. Now, um, the ceremony that happened in the tabernacle and then in the temple in the Old Testament, those animals that were brought up were the best available animals. They, they were animals that were supposed to be uh, firstborn and spotless and uh, as pure as possible. But you must remember those oxen and lambs and goats and turtle doves all still existed under the sin-cursed world. And so their blood was could only 
symbolize the blood of the one that would come. As we have gone through Hebrews, what we have said is that this book is written to the Hebrews or the Jews who are stuck trying to leave Judaism and enter into the New Testament or the New Covenant and they're having a hard time leaving behind the ceremonialism of Judaism and just clinging to Christ and letting Christ be the completion of all those things that were symbolized in the Old Testament. And so all throughout Hebrews, uh, the author, which would be God, he goes through and he says, Jesus is better than the prophets. And Jesus is better than the angels, and Jesus is better than Moses, and Jesus is better than uh, uh, fill in the blank. And so here we've made it to chapter nine, and he's uh, the priest, and on down, and he's now taking on the blood shed by the animals. This desire to go back into the temple and sacrifice the animals all over again. And the author is saying to these Hebrew folks, he's saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! There's no need to sacrifice animals because." Jesus was the final sacrifice. There's no need to spill the blood of a spotless lamb because the blood of Jesus was spilled and that all of those pointed up to Jesus, culminated in Jesus, and those sacrifices were terminated in Jesus. And so uh, chapter 9 is meant to lay out how that the blood of Jesus far exceeded and far outshined and was far better than the blood of the animals. Let's quickly review where we have gotten to. On the back of your prayer bulletin, you'll see the blanks that are already filled in. And that's where we got to, uh, let's see, two weeks ago. I believe, I didn't mark in my notes where that was, but I believe I remember. Okay, number one, we looked at the comparison of the bloods. The comparison of the bloods. And we compared animal blood to Christ's blood. Animal blood to Christ's blood. We said that animal blood purified the flesh only. But Christ's blood purged the conscience. We talked about the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the high priest would take a bowl of a uh, of a lamb that was spotless, firstborn. He would take a bowl of the blood of that lamb that had been offered up on the brazen altar, either in the outside the tabernacle or outside of the temple. He would walk through the curtain into the holy of holies, where the uh, ark of the covenant was, where that Moses, where that mercy seat was. He dip his fingers in that blood bowl and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and that would get them by for another year. Now, what exactly? was accomplished in that. Can I tell you that the blood of those animals, all it accomplished was the purifying of the flesh. It did nothing for their conscience. Um, and, and so without rehashing all that so we can finish the Bible study tonight, Christ's blood comes along. Look at verse number 12 with me, or rather verse number uh, 13. It says, For the uh, uh, blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean. Look here. Sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. It was only on the flesh level. Nothing d- deeper. Look at verse 14. How much more so the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So our conscience is brought back to life through the spirit of God. And uh, that's what the blood of Christ accomplished. So the comparison of the bloods, animal blood purified the flesh only. Christ's blood purged the conscious. Notice next, uh, animal blood was a temporary measure, whereas Christ's blood was a timeless treasure. You know, the blood of that animal would only work for so long. And then they have to go kill another one. And then another one. And then another one. But Jesus, he only had to die once. He only had to die once. And that blood, that blood sacrifice 
covers everything. Past, those that lived in the present with him, and those that lived in the future, which would be us and those that, those that will live on before us. So the comparison of the bloods, uh, look, lay the animal sacrifice to rest. That was a temporary measure. Jesus has died, and his blood is a timeless treasure. So we looked at the comparison of the bloods, and then we got through number two, the correlation of the Trinity. Now, this is my favorite part of the Bible study. Or the rest of it's good, and we're going to get to it in a minute. But this is great. All right, we looked at, um, at verse 14. And I made this point two weeks ago. There aren't very many verses in the Bible where the whole Trinity is present in the whole verse. But verse 14, you find God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working together in tandem to accomplish our salvation. It is awesome. We looked at letter A, the sacrifice of Christ. Look at verse 14. How much more shall the blood of who? The blood of Christ. Okay, and then we looked at letter B, the support by the Spirit. Go back to verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal who? Spirit, eternal spirit. Uh, So the blood of Christ offered himself, Christ offered himself without spot to God. So it was Christ that offered himself up, but it was the Spirit of God that was involved in the process. I took uh, uh, about 10 minutes, two weeks ago, maybe 15 minutes, and we looked at how the Spirit of God is involved in our salvation. We looked at uh, how he was there uh, when, when, uh, and conceived in Mary. He uh, endorsed uh, the ministry of Jesus. He was involved in the resurrection of Jesus. We looked at verses for all these. We looked at how that he is involved in the salvation of the believer, he's involved in the sealing of the believer, and he's involved in the sanctification of the believer. The Holy Spirit plays a role in all of those aspects of our salvation story. So we looked at the sacrifice of Christ, we looked at the support by the Spirit, and then letter C, we looked at the satisfaction of the Father. Go back to verse number 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to who? To serve the living God. That's speaking of God the Father. Okay, let's see. I had, um, let's see, I had a one man stand here. I think it was Brother John, right? Were you helping me with this, Brother John? Maybe it was someone else. Okay, I'm talking to two guys named John right in line with each other. So, neither one of you. All right. But I had one of you here, somebody here, and I stood over here, and I believe Brother Mike Jankowski stood in the middle. Do you remember this, Brother Mike? Vaguely. Okay, it was just two weeks ago. Okay. All right. Marie, you remember. You're sharper than your husband. But we already knew that. Okay. And uh, we said that God and, and, and Adam had a relationship like this. And then Adam sinned and God turned his back on Adam. And Adam turned his back on God. And then Jesus came into the picture. And he stood here and died on the cross. And now God turns his back around to humanity and looks at humanity through the person of Jesus, and he waits for this person, the descendant of Adam, to turn and look through Jesus. Now, God is ready and willing to receive any sinner. He has one requirement. This guy or this gal has to turn around and look through Jesus to God for salvation. And so, uh, why did Jesus come and die on the cross? To purge our conscience. To serve the living God. So we see here the correlation, excuse me, of the Trinity. 
Number three, notice the completion of the first testament. In a moment, we're going to look at verse 15. Also, if you could turn to Matthew 5.17 and 1 Timothy 2.5. And Brother Joe, if you could mute my mic for a moment, that would be great. All set. I'm getting over a cold here, so you have to, uh, have to forgive me here. Bear with me. Look at verse number 15 with me of uh, Hebrews chapter 9. The completion of the First Testament. It says, And for this cause, he, Jesus, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. You say, Pastor, that's really wordy. What does that mean? All right. Um, uh, here's what it means. All right. You have a bunch of people who lived under the First Testament. What was the First Testament? It was Moses' Testament. It was the law. All these people lived under the law. And you know what the law said? The law said you have to keep all the rules or else. Okay. What about those people that couldn't keep all the rules, which would be all of them, but put their faith in a coming Messiah? What are they to do now that they're dead and that First Testament uh, uh, wasn't quite followed all the way? Well, the Bible tells us here that Jesus came along and he completed the First Testament. Let's look at some verses here quickly and then I'll, um, I'll, I'll tie it all together. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 17 says this, it says, think not, Jesus is speaking here, that I am come to destroy the law or the covenant or the first testament or the prophet. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Uh, let's look at another verse here. Look at first Timothy chapter two and verse number five. This is a verse that's very common. And uh, I'm going to make an application from this verse. I'll give you the interpretation and then I'll make an application. First Timothy chapter two and verse number five says this, it says, um, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, um, that verse directly means that Jesus steps in between, like I showed you here, Jesus directly steps in between us and God, and he is the go-between, he's the liaison, he is the one who takes the sinner and takes the Savior and brings them together. Okay, But think of it this way. Those that lived in the Old Testament that failed to keep that first law under Moses, they needed outside help. And Jesus came in and he said, I'm going to die on the cross and I'm going to complete the first testament. All those... So here's the difference. Here we are in the New Testament and we look back at the cross. We know who Jesus is. We know he was the son of God. We know he shed his blood. We know he dies. And we're commanded not to believe in God vaguely, but to believe in Jesus specifically. You all with me here? In the Old Testament, they knew that a Messiah was coming, but they didn't know who he was. They didn't know exactly how he would come. They had some vague details. They knew he'd be born through a, 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 a womb, a, the womb of a virgin, as Isaiah predicted. But how about those that lived prior to Isaiah? How about those that lived all the way prior to any of the Bible reading? Uh, the, all they knew was what God had told Eve is that I will send someone who will deliver you. And so they looked forward to God. 
God and trusted he would send someone. And so their trust, they don't know the object of a cross. They don't know how he'll die. They don't have a lot of details, but their faith is not in an animal. Their faith is in God that he will redeem them from their sin. And and so um, uh, Jesus comes along and he is the completer of that testament they lived under so that they could be redeemed and could enter into heaven. Let's continue on here. Number four, notice the conditions of a testament. The conditions of a testament. Look at verse number 16 with me. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. All right. Uh, uh, Now, here's a realization I came to. And some of you may say, Pastor, that's obvious. How did you not know that? All right. But here's the realization I came to. And my guess is that if I just figured this out studying this, then for some of you, this will be news. My whole life, I've grown up in church hearing Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, New Testament, Old Testament. And I just thought a testament meant a group of books. And then I would hear in a separate setting, someone talk about a will and testament. But I never put the two ideas together. Did you know that the word testament, describing Old Testament and New Testament, and the idea of a will and testament, that word testament means the exact same thing here. All right. A testament is written. It is it is the desire of someone and it is executed upon the death of that person. Letter A notice the desire, the desire of the testator. Who is the testator? The testator in the Old Testament was Moses. The testator in the New Testament was Jesus. Now, again, Moses and Jesus are compared all throughout the book. God worked through Moses to give the Old Testament. He was the testator that wrote it. Jesus comes along and he gives us the New Testament. That's why the New Testament is more powerful than the Old Testament. That's why Jesus came to fulfill what Moses started. Not to destroy it, but to fulfill it. Jesus completed what Moses could not complete. Now, what is the desire of Jesus. The desire of Jesus is that you will go through him to be saved. The death, or rather the desire of the testator, notice letter B, the death of the testator. Look back at verse 16. For a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. The death of the testator. Who was the testator? It was Jesus. What did he do? He died for us. He died for us. Had Jesus not died... For us, that his testament would have meant nothing. Would have meant nothing. Just like this. I could write out a will and testament right now. Let's say I had billions of dollars in the bank. All right, newsflash. I do not have billions of dollars in the bank. Well, let's just say I did. All right? And I pull out my testament and I tell my children, all right, Matthew, when I die, you get $7 billion in April. You get... 7.5 billion, because I like you a little more, okay? And um, uh, that's not actually true. I like them both the same. But uh, let's say that I write this out, and they're like, oh, man, Dad is so stingy. He's so stingy. We don't get anything from Dad. I mean, he makes us wear, you know, uh, uh, shoes and socks that are holes, holes in the socks, and, you know, he makes us eat cheap food, and Dad's got all this money he's hoarding away. And, and you know what? When Dad dies, we're going to be filthy rich, you know what? I can put that in a testament, but until I die, they, they don't really benefit. 
The death of the testator must happen before it benefits those that are in the testament. You all tracking with me here? And so you have the Old Testament that was written, but it wasn't any good until Jesus came and died in order to fulfill the testament that was written. And by the way, the Old Testament foreshadowed the coming Christ who would need to die to fulfill that testament. And Jesus' death not only brings a conclusion to the Old Testament, it also brings a conclusion to the New Testament. It doesn't just cover those that live prior to Christ. His death also and his bloodshed also covers those who live during Christ and after Christ. The death of the testator. Look back at verse number 16. Let's read that again with this in mind. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of, 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 of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon, neither he, uh, uh, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Okay, so the, uh, the conditions of a testament. There, the, the, there must be a testament written. We have that in the old and the new. And we have the death of the testator. Have, um, um, how many of you here, don't raise your hand, but I wonder how many of you here have ever had to deal with the mess in probate court after someone dies when no testament was written? Uh, someone dies, and let's say they have a large estate, and, and the children squabble and fight and argue over how to divide it. All right? Um, that's a mess because the will and testament was not put on paper. And we don't have a will and testament written out yet, but we probably need to do that. Okay, Make a note. We need to make a will and testament. Okay, I'm not planning on dying anytime soon. I don't think you are either, but we, we probably ought to do that. All right, but uh, if you haven't, I'm sure if you're older in here, um, uh, maybe even the smart ones that are younger have done that. Jesus not only died, he wrote out what his will for us is, and he wrote out what the testament is, and then he died so that that testament could be bestowed upon us. All right. Lastly here, let's look at uh, the cleansing of Christ's blood. Look at verse, now with all that set as the background, that brings verse 22 to light and makes it even more powerful. Look at verse 19. For when Moses has spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament, that would be his testament, which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkleth with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. Now, you have to stop here. Before we get to verse 22, you have to stop and you have to understand everything Moses did ceremonially, he did as a representation of Christ. All of it. From the way the tabernacle was laid out, to what they wore, to the animals that were sacrificed, to the way the brazen altar was made, to the way the furniture was laid out in the holy place, to, to the objects that were in the Ark of the Covenant, uh, to the way the Ark of the Covenant was made, to the cherubims, uh, to the mercy seat. All of it was to symbolize the sanctuary in heaven we looked at a few weeks ago. And all of it was just to be a representation of Jesus Christ. 
You with me? And so what did Moses do? He walked around with that bowl of blood and he sprinkled it on furniture. He sprinkled it on the curtains that made the tabernacle. He sprinkled it on the dirt around. He sprinkled it on everything. And what was the purpose of that? It symbolized a cleansing of that item so that it could be used for a sacred cause. I'm going somewhere here with this, okay? He sprinkled it on the items, dedicating it, setting it apart so that it could be used For a specific cause. Now, Jesus comes and he dies on the cross and he sheds his blood. He goes into the ground. He raises three days later. And you remember this part of the story? Mary is in the garden and she is just beside herself. She's beside herself uh, and says, tell me where you've taken his body. And Jesus calls her name and she realizes who it is. You all familiar with the story here? And then uh, she comes up and wants to give him a big old hug. And Jesus says, don't touch me. I've not yet ascended unto my father. But just a few verses later, he tells the disciples, he says, put your fingers in the prints and run your hand into my side. Now, why could they touch him? But Mary couldn't. Can I tell you what I think? I think that Mary saw him before he took his blood to heaven and sprinkled it on the mercy seat in the sanctuary in the presence of God. You say, is that a real place? Yes, it is. It's just as real as the room you're standing in, sitting in. Um, uh, I believe that happened. Uh, but, but so after he saw Mary, before he saw the disciples, he gathered together the blood he shed on the cross. And he went into the, in, into the Holy of Holies in heaven. And he did what all of eternity past and all of eternity future had been waiting for that moment of time. He dipped his own fingers as a priest, as the high priest, as the priest of mankind into his own blood. And he stood there in the, in the Holy of Holies in heaven and he sprinkled his blood on that that mercy seat, allowing all of us to be able to enter into heaven. And then when you bow your head and you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he takes that blood and he washes the sins off of your record. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no forgiveness. Is no remission. That word remission means forgiveness. It means clearing the record. Now what did we say that Moses sprinkled the blood around the tabernacle in the tabernacle for? He did that to set it apart to be holy. He did it to set it apart for a sacred purpose and use. Jesus did not sprinkle his blood on your heart so you could leave that event and go live like the devil and go live like the world. He sprinkled his blood on the record of your sins to wash it away so that you would live for him. You are the temple of God. First Corinthians six says, what know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that liveth within you? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are property of, which are God's, which are property of the Lord. And so he has sprinkled his blood, yes, to save us, but he's also sprinkled his blood on our record so that we would serve him to sanctify us. Isn't that powerful? 
Isn't that powerful? The blood of animals was nothing more than a get, hold, hold over, a get me by until Jesus could come and die on the cross. And Jesus died on the cross. The animal sacrifices stopped because his blood was far superior and supreme. And that blood is used to wash away our sins. Now, I want to finish with this. Don't ever let anybody tell you. There's all kinds of YouTube preachers out there that will say this. There's all kinds of heretics out there that will say this. Don't ever let anybody tell you that the blood of Jesus doesn't matter. Oh, yes, it does. The blood of Jesus, if you want to remove that from your doctrine, you are removing an essential part of salvation. The blood of Jesus has a life to it that alters our life. Our contaminated blood doesn't do any good. One more application is this. Um, I can't work my way to heaven because my blood inside my body is contaminated. I need a pure blood, a perfect blood. I need the blood of the spotless Lamb of God, which is what he's called in Revelation. I need that blood to be laid on my account, my sins to be purified or cleansed, and my heart to be set apart for a holy purpose. Christian, are you living like your heart's been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus? Or has your entertainment gone awry from that? Um, you go into the Old Testament and you can see how that at times when Israel was backslidden, they just really didn't reverence or revere the property of the tabernacle or temple or the ark. And God did not deal well with that. When we ruin our temple, God does not take well to that. And so let's make sure we're, we're living our lives in a way that's worthy of having had the blood of Jesus sprinkled on our account. Okay, let's stand together to be dismissed with the word of prayer. Uh, I hope you understand the passage a little better.